Jesus wiped out the handwritten requirements that was against us. That's the law. Every law that you and I couldn't obey, he wiped it out. And he has taken it out of the way. And how did he do that? He nailed it to the cross. One of the ways that you signified that a debt was paid for is you took that certificate and you nailed it to a post. Our sin has been paid in full and it was nailed to the cross of Jesus. Um, Our children, I guess you can get up and and be dismissed at this time if you haven't already left. Um, So let's, let's stand together and we're going to read from the book of Romans this morning, Romans chapter 16. We're only going to read two verses, but I'm going to make reference to 1 through 16. Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul's finishing this letter, and so he's wrapping up some final details, and making his greetings to the church at Rome. I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centuria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy, or that which becometh, this becoming to someone who is a saint, that become a saint, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and myself also. Father, we learn so much about how drastically different the New Testament church was from the rest of Roman society. And so, God, today it is our prayer as a church that we would learn how different we are supposed to be from the current society that we live around. Lord, bless your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This passage that we're going to look at today is one of the most neglected passages in Bible preaching. And... A lot of people look at this list and think, well, there's not a whole lot for us to glean from this. And other ministries and other churches don't practice verse-by-verse Bible teaching, and so it's just glossed over or totally ignored. But there's a lot we can learn from this lady, Phoebe. There's a lot we can learn from the individuals in Paul's list here of all the people that he greets in Rome. There are 26 different individuals that Paul mentions by name in this church. And there are nine women that are named in this group. And so we learn a lot about what the New Testament church family looked like in biblical times from the very earliest start, and what a New Testament church should look like now. 
it was a simple organization of people. It wasn't complex. It was a grassroots movement of people that normally had been marginalized by society. By marginalized, I mean people that were viewed as insignificant. And yet when they came to Christ, their life had meaning, and every individual in the body of Christ is significant. And that was something so new and so drastically different. And you think about America today, where we have so much conflict between different culture groups, different people of socioeconomic backgrounds, people of different educational levels, and yet the beauty of Christianity is it erases all of those superficial barriers because they are nothing but superficial at the very most. Because what we have in common, that far outweighs what we have in differences. Paul writing to the Galatian church. Let me read a few verses from this, and you can see the, the radical difference between a New Testament church and Roman society. Paul writing to the Galatians, and he says this, For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Every one of us in this room, if you, by the Spirit of God, have trusted Jesus as your Savior, you have placed your faith in Him, there is a promise that Jesus gave that you would then be filled with the Holy Spirit. He promises this in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, it was the great feast day. I know I'm kind of chasing a rabbit here, but this is I want you to show you how we all are equal in Christ and what God has provided for us in Christ to bring about this equality. He says, as the scripture has said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke concerning the spirit that those believing would receive. Notice the order. We believe and then receive the Spirit. We don't have to do anything to merit it or to work to it, nor do we need to just simply wait passively and ask the Holy Spirit just to zap us out of nowhere and mystically regenerate us so that we can have faith. That is not the order. The order is we believe, and then we are illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Then we receive the Spirit. John's Gospel says this, Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. And that by believing, you have life. We don't invert that. We don't get life so as to believe. We believe so as to get life. And when you and I believe in Jesus and we place our faith in him, we are baptized and we put on Christ. Every one of us has the mind of Christ if you have believed in him. And then what Paul says this, when we do that, there is neither Jew 
nor Greek. The Greeks elevated their philosophy and their wisdom. The Jew elevated their religion. And when Jesus met a Samaritan woman at a well, you think about that. Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. And he met a marginalized individual, a woman who was put out of society. One, because she was a woman. Second, because she was probably a prostitute. And another reason is because she had been with many, many men. And so she came to the well when no one else would come so that she wouldn't interact with anybody. And Jesus interacts with her because Christ is the Savior of all of us, regardless of our background, regardless of where we've been or what we've done. It's irrelevant. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And the woman says, how is it that you being a Jew speak to me, a woman of Samarita, Samaria? So she understood this distinction. She understood that Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles, they don't mix. They don't get along. And then later in her conversation, she says, you Jews, you worship in Jerusalem. We worship up upon this mountain. And Jesus said to her, the time is coming and now is when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem people are going to worship me. For my followers will worship me in spirit and in truth. And so what Paul is saying here in Galatians, there is no longer Jew. There's no longer Gentile. We are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And all of those divisions, they are gone in Christ. So there's no longer Jew. There's no longer Gentile. Then he says this, there is neither slave nor free. That is radical. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And Paul is now saying, that's been abolished. There is no longer slave and free. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says, those of you who are slaves, don't worry about it. Because you're no longer a slave in Christ's view. You are now Christ's freed man or freed woman. And you people who are free, don't think that you're a notch better than the person that is a slave. He says, you know why? Because now that you are saved, you have become a slave. What a paradox. The free man is now a slave of Jesus. And the slave is now freed by Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the New Testament church that was so radically different. That was sweeping through the Roman Empire. What a message that was to the downcast. What a message that was to the person who felt that they had no hope or the person who felt that his life was insignificant or the person who thought he was enslaved and had no way of freedom. Something that's still in my memory is when we watched that group of people from Pakistan who were enslaved their entire life because of a debt that they couldn't pay and they were making bricks and they were going to pass that debt onto their children. And yet those were some of the most joyful Christians that you would ever meet because Christ had set them free in spite of their circumstances. 
So there's no longer slave. There's no longer free. There's no longer male nor female. Man, that could have started a revolution in the Roman Empire. Women were thought of nothing less than property in the eyes of the Roman government. Women were not allowed to testify in court. They were not allowed to hold any public office or position. And if you wanted to divorce a woman for any reason, you could just write her off. And Paul is saying, in Christ. Now, he's not just saying that I've obliterated the distinction in roles of men and women. But what he is saying is there is equality, even though I have created them differently and uniquely for different purposes. I want to refer to a historian who understood the radical difference of Christianity and how he feared it. He was not only a historian, he was a Roman governor over an area called Bithynia, which is today Turkey. It was Asia Minor at that time. But this man, Pliny the Younger was his name, and he was a prolific writer, and he kept annals of history and things that were going on. And we have got a lot of knowledge about what New Testament Christianity was about in the earliest times because he wrote very, very early in the first century. So Christianity is a new religion, and yet it was spreading everywhere in the Roman Empire, and Pliny the Younger was doing everything in his power to eradicate it. And the harder he tried to get rid of the Christian, the faster the Christian message grew. So he was writing a letter to Trajan, who was the Roman emperor at the time. But it shows us some unique things. One of the things that his letters write, that his letters reveal to us, that the early church, right from the start, had a very, very high belief in Jesus. This notion that Christianity evolved over centuries is rubbish. There's no historical veracity to any of that. These idiots who sit at Harvard University and have their Jesus seminars, and they sit with their little beads, white, green, red, and blue, and the ones that they think that maybe the church wrote later, they'll give it a color bead, and the ones that Jesus might have said, they'll give that one a red bead. Every historian today now knows that the church recorded very, very early. And the reason that the New Testament sayings of Jesus are similar to the church is because Jesus is the foundation for the church. So, I don't know why I got on that rabbit trail. But anyway, this shows us how early they had a view of Jesus Pliny the Younger says that these early churches, they meet before dawn. They meet on the first day of the week. Why is that significant? It's because they came to the tomb on the first day of the week, and the tomb was empty. One of the greatest proofs for the resurrection is even Jesus' enemies knew the tomb was empty. You know what they told people? Tell them that the disciples stole the body. Why did they tell them to stole, that the disciples stole the body? 
because they couldn't find the body and because the tomb was empty. You don't make up a lie for a tomb that's got a body in it. You only say that they stole it because there's nobody there. So even the naysayers, even the ones who didn't believe in Christ, knew that the tomb was empty. And they worshipped this man Christos as if he were a god because he resurrected himself the third day. That's what Pliny the Younger wrote. In one of his letters, he tortured two female Christians to find out the perversity of their religion. And so we find that women were prominent in the New Testament church, something, a role that they never, ever had before until Christianity. This notion that Christianity suppresses and oppresses women is nothing but a lie. The Bible elevates the role of a woman, of a wife, like no other spiritual book ever written. Paul tells a man to love his wife, to sacrifice his wife for his wife, to love his wife as he loves his own body. Peter says a husband is to render under his wife's submission and that he is to dwell with her according to her knowledge or knowledge that he has of her needs. And he is to respect her as the weaker physical vessel. This was never, ever recorded in any other religion. And so women were prominent in the New Testament church. But Pliny, then after he tortured these women, he wrote this, I therefore postponed my investigation. And I hastened to consult you, for the matter seemed to me to warrant your consultation, especially because of the numbers, the vast numbers of Christians that are involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, both sexes will be endangered if we do not stop this insidious superstition. That's what they thought of Christianity. They knew it was supernatural, whatever they believed in. It was unexplainable by natural means that a body would raise itself from the dead. He went on to write, For this contagion, this superstition, has not only spread to the cities, but it is also filtering out into the villages and the farms. Accordingly, I judged it more necessary to find out what truth I may have by torturing these two female slaves who were called deaconesses of their church. But all I discovered was nothing else but a depraved, excessive superstition. That's what they thought of Christianity. That's what the enemy thought of Christianity. So it tells us that whatever they believed in, it was of a supernatural nature. And no matter what he did to torture these early Christians, they would not recant because they knew that their Savior lived. There are two things that keep people from coming to Christ. Well, there's really just one thing. 
The one thing that keeps people from putting their faith in Jesus is pride. Because the message is so foolish and it is so simple. Foolish that a man became a god. I'm sorry, God became a man. Get that one. I'm a heretic. I'm out of here. <laughs> but God became a man. And that this God loved you so much that he was willing to die in your place. And you can be forgiven and you don't have to do anything. That's absolute foolish. I, I can't accept that kind of a message. The second reason that pride will keep you from putting your faith in Jesus is that Jesus says none of us are good. And you've got to humble yourself and you've got to admit that you're a Savior. Pride is what keeps people from accepting Jesus. And that's what Pliny the Younger was struggling with. His pride. How can this doctrine that accepts women, that accepts children, who accepts every misfit. I am too proud to put my faith in that. I am too good of a person. I am too righteous. I do not need a Savior. And we see in this list in Romans chapter 16, people from every age, every walk of life, men, women, fellow prisoners, women who were called deacons of the church, we learn that Christianity in less than one generation had spread across the Roman Empire in spite and often because of persecution. Their beliefs and their practices are a direct result of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. Christianity is not bound by any demographic. Every age, from youth to seniors, from every social economic background, from intellectuals who are willing to become fools, and simpletons who are willing to become wise in Christ. This is exactly what we see in Paul's letter here. We see the transforming power of the gospel. And he recognizes a woman here, and he says in verse 16, chapter 16 and verse 1, I commend... That is a powerful word. The word to commend somebody literally means, I will stand with this woman, and this woman stands in my place. This is an apostle who is writing this, and he says, I commend this woman. She stands in my place. She is my representative. When I send her to Rome, you receive her as if I am standing there. And that's what the word commend. Soon istami. Soon is with. Istami means to stand with. I want you to recognize her. Stand with her. And her name, Phoebe. This is a, an amazing. That, the name Phoebe is a pagan goddess of light. And she is no longer worshiping the pagan gods of Rome. She is now a believer in Jesus Christ. So now we have a woman, a sister, Phoebe, who was formerly a pagan, is now under the umbrella and under the arms and under the grace of Jesus. 
Then he calls her a servant. That's what my translation says, a servant of the church. The Greek word is deacon. Now, <clears throat> we know a little bit from church history about what that, mean, what that name means, a, a deacon of the church. In early church history, we find extra-biblical writers saying that, that this name deacon really is not so much a title, and that's the way we think often, that it's a title, but it's not so much a title as it represents what these women did. We find in Paul's letters a hint, but we find a lot in the extra-biblical writings of the church early fathers what these women who were termed as deaconesses did. They visited the sick. They went to prisons. They took in uh, widows whose husbands had been martyred. They washed the feet of the saints. They were women of hospitality. Another part of the, the role of this, women, this, this group of women, they took upon themselves a pledge of chastity. That is, after they lost their husband, they gave a vow or a pledge that they then would become servants of the church and minister to the body of Christ. Now, as I was studying this this week, I thought about a passage in 1 Timothy that I always had trouble understanding. And now it made perfect sense to me. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and it's relating to widows in the church. And Paul is advising younger women not to enter into this ministry. He says, I give my advice here. I would think it better that the younger widows marry and to raise children. And the reason he said that, he says, many of the younger women began to lose, and he says a strange phrase, they have cast off their first faith. And I've always had trouble understanding what does that verse mean? Does it mean that they lost their salvation? That, that, that's unbiblical. He can't mean that. What does it mean to cast off their faith, their belief in Jesus? The word first means initial, and in the, the word faith, according to a lot of the early church fathers, that was a pledge of fidelity. And so he was saying, I don't want younger widows to get into this ministry because a lot of them learned that, hey, you know what, I really wish I was married. And because of this, they are under guilt and they're feeling under condemnation because they have gone back on their initial pledge. So that kind of, it gives us a window, an insight into early church, New Testament Christianity and what it looked like. But this is my point that I want to make to all of us today, and here's the application, is that regardless of who you are, regardless of your background, regardless of whatever your status is, every one of us are uniquely gifted, and God has a place for you in the economy and in the body of Christ. I think as we've started these life groups, I've seen more ministry in the last three or four weeks 
Maybe it's just because my eyes have been open to it. But I hear of people meeting. I hear of people praying together. I hear of people calling one another. And every one of us are needed. Every one of us are indispensable to the body of Christ. And so that's the point that I want to get across. I commend to you this woman. In other words, Paul is saying, she approved, she stands with me. She was given the solemn task of carrying the book of Romans. You think of the rich theology that we have, and Phoebe was the lady who carried this letter to Rome. She's addressed as a servant of the church. The role of a servant is to aid also in evangelism, to care for poor, to care for widows, to take in strangers, to disciple and train younger women, and to train children in theology. And I think about North Valley Bible Church, and every Sunday when I say the children are dismissed, who is it that goes back? I haven't seen a man yet go back there and help with our kids. Who is it that influences the next society? The greatest impact is from women. You think about it. Women have the greatest influence on our culture and our society, and we have poo-pooed and we've downplayed their role and we've made womanhood look as if you want to be ashamed of it. Women ought to be incensed with this notion of of being exalted because I want to be like a man. That's ridiculous. God has made you so wonderful and precious and tender and sweet and kind that I don't want a bunch of ladies looking like and acting like me. Heaven forbid. God was too smart for that. And we're trying to undo everything that God has done. Many of you know the name Ben Carson. Ran for the President of the United States. One of the most brilliant neo neurosurgeons, first one who did the, an advanced uh, separation between Siamese twins. I mean, the man is brilliant. You know who he gives all of his credit to? A woman named Sonia Carson. A young girl who was an orphan, raised in foster care, had a second grade education, completely illiterate, married at the age of 13, divorced and abandoned to raise two sons in a ghetto. You know what she did? Before dawn, before the kids got up, she was already at work. Many nights she would come home and put her kids into bed and read the Bible stories to them and then go back and work a third job. And because she couldn't read, Ben came home one day with failing grades and she says, no more TV, we're getting it out of the house. You're going to check out two books every week and you're going to give me a book report on those two books. Sonia Carson said this, you give God your best and then you watch God do all the rest. A godly woman who had faith and she led her son to Christ, and who loved the Bible and read it and was well-versed in it. So the most powerful influences that we can have are usually, most often, through the power 
of a woman's gentle hand. They were to assist her in whatever business she needed. Now, how were they to do this? How were they to assist her? Well, notice how Paul expects them to receive her. Receive her, first of all, receive her in the Lord. That is where our equality comes from. In the Lord. Remember those verses in Galatians. Remember the verses in Colossians. In Christ Jesus, in the Lord, there's no longer Jew. There's no longer Gentile. There's no longer slave. There's no longer free. There's no longer women. There's no longer men. We receive each other because Christ has received us. So I'm sending you this woman. Her name is Phoebe. She is my sister in Christ. I commend her to you, and you receive her because she is in the Lord. And then the next phrase, you receive her in a manner that is worthy. The word worthy is the Greek word axis or axios. And an axis balances something. And so you are to receive her in a way that is becometh, the old King James, that is worthy, that, that shows the value and the dignity of someone who is a saint, someone who is sanctified and set apart for God's use. So they were to receive her in what area? Whatever business she needs. The Greek word for business is pragmatos, where we get pragmatic. Whatever was best, whatever was going to benefit, whatever was going to help this church, I'm sending you this woman, and I want you to receive her, and I want you to assist her and promote whatever work that's going to benefit this church assembly. And then he tells why. For indeed, she has been a, I love the old King James, a sucker. The Greek word there is a woman who would stand in the place of others. Someone who would take on all of their hurts, all of their pain, and be an intercessor and to bring healing and health and emotional well-being. That's the word that he's using for her. And she has done that for many, and she's also done that for me, Paul says. So what is the application? The greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those who serve. And every one of us has the capacity to serve one another. It takes various roles for everyone, and no one is insignificant in God's ministry. Women in the early church were elevated and were assisted and they were viewed with respect for their, for their sacrificial service. Nothing could be more untrue that women are not important and that their role is insignificant because they don't have the title of a bishop or an overseer. We don't need to violate the biblical role of masculinity in order to, to elevate women to the role that God has designed for them. God did not intend for the woman to have to lead. And unfortunately, many men have advocated that role and have forced their wife or forced a woman into that position. Woe on us when we do that. Second point that I want to make is from the verses 2 through 16, and we're not going to read those, but I'm just going to 
bring out some of the, the, the phrases that are used here that Paul describes these people. The first couple, man and woman, again, Priscilla. And it's interesting that he puts Priscilla first. Priscilla and Aquila. What does he call them? My fellow workers in Christ. What do they do? They risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles. So we see here that, that, that uh, the reason Paul is commending this group of people, the first one is because of self-sacrifice. Self-interest was subservient to their own needs and even to their own safety. This is what the early church looks like, and this is what the Christian church should look like today. Women like Mary, who wore themselves out. That's the word that he uses here for Mary. Mary, who labored much. The word to labor means to work to the point of exhaustion. Again, he lists a, a woman. So what is, it that, what, what is it that God values? He values self-sacrifice. He values those who wear themselves out in the service of others. And then he notes fellow prisoners who counted the cost to follow Christ. Those who prized unity. He called them fellow workers, fellow prisoners, and beloved. And then in verse 12, we see three more women that are listed that labored with him. Greet Tophania. I'm not pronouncing these ladies right, probably. Tryphosa. And who labored in the Lord and greet the beloved Paris. All, that, all these are feminine nouns, feminine ladies, feminine um, nouns, who labored much in the Lord. So as we're finishing up this letter, what is the application? What do we want to walk away today from this service and this teaching? Number one, there's a role for every one of you at North Valley Bible Church. You don't have to have a title. You don't have to have a position to serve Christ at North Valley Bible Church. Every one of you. Titles, they're irrelevant. They can be useful as they identify people. But what identifies you the most isn't your title but it's what you do. Christianity is Jesus transforming you one person at a time. That's Christianity. The predominant quality that we need to develop and emulate at this church, in this list of people that we saw, what is it that we need to emulate? What is it that we need to follow? Simple things like this. Faithfulness. Everyone in this list was faithful. We can be faithful, can't we? Everyone in this list sacrificed something. All of us have something that we can lay aside. Our time, our resources, our gifts. Everyone in this list valued community over self. We need to recognize and appreciate one another as well. There's nothing wrong with thanking somebody for teaching a Sunday school class. There's nothing wrong with grabbing a lady 
when they walk out and say, thank you for spending that hour with my child this morning. Because that's what Paul is doing here. He is commending, he's recognizing those who serve. And so we should be doing that. We should appreciate and mutually encourage each other for what we receive from one another. Finally, the most important, the gospel, it yields fruit when it's faithfully proclaimed. Pliny the Younger couldn't understand it. The world will not get it. But we can yield fruit. The gospel will change lives and lives of every walk of life. And our God is no respecter of persons. As I close, I want to just share a, a personal story in my own life that uh, I've been listening to the old radio program, Unshackled. Many of you don't probably even have ever heard of it. It's from the Pacific Garden Mission, downtown Chicago, Illinois. And it comes on with this organ music, and then it's this, this dramatization of real lives that are changed. That was New Testament Christianity in Rome. Paul being in a prison, a slave escapes, gets arrested in Rome, gets thrown in the same cell with the Apostle Paul. If they had unshackled back then, there would be an unshackled dramatization of a guy named Philemon who used to steal, who used to pilfer everything from his owner, ran off to Rome and was going to squander all of his money, ended up in the gutter, thrown in prison, and he meets the Apostle Paul and he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. He sent back home to serve his master, no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Jesus Christ. Proclaim this gospel because nothing else can change people. It's Jesus alone. Let's close in prayer. Father.